We're going to be in Jeremiah 2, and I'm going to ask Carde to come, and Leo, if you wouldn't mind, we're going to read a lot of verses. So if you could kind of give us some like nice background music while we read, it'll help us stay engaged. Can you do that? So, so Carde is going to come, and uh, Carde is going to read for us Jeremiah chapter 2. Come on up here, brother. You're going to sit down? So uh, we decided to read the entire chapter. It's a long one, and, uh, but it is God's Word. And if we can't read a lot of God's Word in church, I don't know where we can read a lot of God's Word. Amen? Say, that's right. Right. Does anybody agree with me? Come on. There we go. Are you just taking your time? Jeremiah chapter 2. If you're new to the Bible, and uh, you can look in the table of contents in the front cover and you can find a page number for Jeremiah. Uh, so Cardi, go ahead and read for us and please listen as, as he reads. You're going to have to turn this like this. There we go. All right. Good morning. All right, Jeremiah chapter 2. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob. And all the clans of the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me and went after worthless and became worth went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did they did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of desert and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that not passes through? where no man dwells, and I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruit and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those, those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children, I will contend. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, or send Kadar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though there are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Is Israel a slave? Is he a home-born servant? When then has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitants. 
Moreover, the men of Memphis and Taphnis have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this upon yourselves by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? And what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you, and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree you bowed down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourselves with, with lyre and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. How can you say, I am not unclean? I have not gone after bells. Look at your ways in the valley. Know what you have done, a restless young camel running here and there. A wild donkey used to, used to the wilderness, in, the heat, in her heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? No one who seeks her need weary themselves. In her mouth they will find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, it is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, their prophets. Who say to a tree, you are my father, or, and to a stone, you gave me birth. For they have turned their back on me. They have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their troubles, they say, arise and save us. But where are your gods that you made for yourselves? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your city are your gods, O Judah. Mm. Why do you contend with me? You have all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. In vain have I struck your children. They took no correction. You, your own sword devoured your prophets like a, like a ravening lion. And you, O generations, behold the word of the Lord. Have I, been a, have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? Why then do my people say, we are free, we will come no more to you? Can a virgin forget her ornaments or bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. How well, how well you direct your course to seek love, so that even to wicked women you have taught your ways. Also, on your skirts it's found the lifeblood of your guiltless poor. You did not find them breaking in. Yet in spite of all these things you say, I am innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. Behold, I will bring to you judgment for saying, I have not sinned. How much you go about changing your way. You shall be put to shame by Egypt as you were put to shame by Assyria. From it too, you will come away with your hands on your head. For the Lord has rejected those whom you trust and you will not prosper by them. Amen. Appreciate it, Carda. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we come into this word that you would help us 
uh, examine our own hearts, that we might see where we uh, have betrayed your love, that we might not leave it there, that we might see your faithful love as you have sought us and found us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Henry Ford, you know the dude that invented the first affordable car uh, using the assembly line? You know what I'm talking about? What was his car line called? Ford. Correct. You guys are historians. He married his wife Clara in 1888, and at their 50th wedding anniversary in 1838, someone asked him, how is it possible that you've been able to stay together for so long, 50 years? How, how, what's the secret to staying in love and staying together? And he said, it's the same secret as we have in the automobile industry, and that is stick with one model which was Ford's secret at the time. Of course, he has multiple models now. But that was his secret for staying together. Now, tragically enough, a lot of folks change their lovers like they change their cars, always looking for a new model, someone better, someone more exciting. But I think even more tragic, we change our gods like we change our cars looking for a better model, looking for a God that can bring us more pleasure, a God that could bring us more instant gratification, a God that can bring us more comfort. I wonder if you have sought to exchange God, the only God, for another God. Maybe we don't call it or him or her or whatever it is a God, Yet, we've got to be honest with ourselves and say there are plenty of lowercase g gods in our lives. Have you betrayed God's love? I want to talk to you this morning on this theme, love betrayed. Love betrayed. In chapter 1 of Jeremiah, we saw last week how Jeremiah was commissioned to a very difficult ministry. Now in chapter 2 of Jeremiah, he begins his ministry and he delivers the first message to the people of God. And in verse 32, we could sort of summarize this message through a rhetorical question that is asked. Verse 32, it simply says this, have my people forgotten me? Have we forgotten God. Now this chapter starts off in the first three verses with the honeymoon. You might remember that the covenant has been made and that covenant is uh, in many ways, or I should say marriage is a picture in many ways of the covenant with God's people. The covenant was made with God and his people called Israel. And in verses one through three, we sort of see the honeymoon stage. God says, remember what it was like back when we were in the wilderness? You followed me through the wilderness. Israel was holy, the first fruits, all who came against. I, I dis brought disaster on them. Like he's, he's hearkening back to this time of a honeymoon when, when Israel was in love with their husband, God. Now you might say, you know, the wilderness, that's kind of a funny honeymoon. Like, if you remember back to the wilderness, 
we wouldn't necessarily think of the wilderness as a, a, a very nice honeymoon. They had some challenges in the honeymoon. But I think it's interesting for us to recognize that God looks back on the wilderness wanderings as the honeymoon with his people. Meaning, what does that say about their relationship now? Meaning, compared to what currently is in Jeremiah's day, the honeymoon, or I'm sorry, the wilderness, was pure honeymoon. And then in verse 4, Jeremiah says this, Hear the words of the Lord, O house of Jacob, all the clans of the house of Israel, thus says the Lord. So he's, he's speaking now to absolutely everybody within Israel, and he delivers this message. Now, as we go through this, I want you to sort of hear these words as somewhat of a letter written by a betrayed husband who is divorcing his wife. And he's writing her a letter, and he's saying, this is what was, now this is what is. And this is why things are coming to an end. These are really hard words, words to read. They are words from someone who has been betrayed. A faithful lover who's been betrayed by an unfaithful lover. And I think there's something in it for us today. You know, we sang this song, Prone to Wander, Lord, I Feel It. We sing that song often. We like that song because we see ourselves in that song, don't we? The human heart is prone to betray the love of God. And what I want to do today is I want to examine this letter that's very difficult to read and get through. I want to examine this letter and I want to learn a little bit about how Israel had betrayed God's love so that we might examine our own hearts, so that we might recognize in ways that, the ways that we have betrayed God's love, and so that we might not continue to betray God's love. Are you with me? So as we get into it, let me just give you a couple descriptions here of the human heart. First, the human heart is forgetful. The human heart is forgetful. Before the days of running water, there was a farmer who had inherited a piece of property. And on this piece of property where he was going to have his farm was a natural spring. Now you can only imagine before the days of like running water, before the days where we have pipes in the ground, you can only imagine like a, a, a natural spring coming through your farmland would be quite a, uh, a valuable piece of property, right? So what happens is this farmer, all he knows is what he's seen. And what he sees other farmers do is when they get their property, they build what's called cisterns. A cistern is like a big tank that you put into the ground and it collects rainwater, and, and that's how you get the water to water your crops. And so the farmer ignores the natural spring that's on his property, and he goes out back and he, he 
starts this back-breaking activity of, of digging holes in the ground and building cisterns. The problem is the farmer's not very good at building cisterns. And by the time they're finished, he's got cracks all in his cisterns. They fill with rainwater, and over the season his crops come, and his crops dry out and die because they're thirsty, because they're not getting enough water from the cisterns. It never seemed to occur to the farmer that he had a natural spring flowing through his property. Now this is the image that God uses of Israel. Saying, this is what you have. You have something that others would just kill for. You've got natural water coming through your land. But you are like a fool, like everybody else, taking cues from the world, and you're digging cisterns. You're building your own little gods, hoping that maybe you can get out of them what you need. Ignoring what you have. Why? It's because they're forgetful. What do they forget? Well, first here I see in the scriptures that they forget God's own worth. Look at verse 5. Thus says the Lord, what, what wrong did your fathers find in me? That they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless. They, they forget how worthy God is. I like that song by Vashon Mitchell. I searched all over. Jody, could you sing it for us? <laughs> Couldn't find nobody. I searched high and low. Couldn't find nobody. Nobody greater. Nobody greater. No, nobody greater than you. <laughs> my brother listens to my sermons, and he says, whenever I try to sing, he says, please don't do that. And he's probably chuckling right now as he's listening to this. Um, the problem is, in Israel's mind, as they're searching, they find gods that they think are greater. And they forget God's own worth. What does worth mean? Somebody give me a definition of worthy. Worthy. Anybody? Value, valuable? Any other definitions? Worthy. Worthy is a good thing. You know, it's actually not a bad definition. The definition I got here is worthy means the quality of being good enough. <laughs> you did, you did. I'll give you a point for that. And so he is, God is worthy, and he's asking this rhetorical question, what wrong did you find in me? Like, where did you find in, in, in all that I've done for you, where did you find some wrong? And what he says is, you've turned, look at the text in verse 5, you went after worthlessness. You see that word? That literally means a puff of wind. I'm going to let you do with that word what you would like to do with that word. But he's saying you're turning after puffs of wind. And then you have become, what does he say they became? Worthless. They went after worthlessness, and they became worthless. See, you become like that you worship. If you worship the true God, you become more and more like his son, Jesus Christ, the image of the true God. If you turn to another God, a puff of wind, a little fart, if you would, 
you become what? You become like nothing. You become like that you worship. You become worthless. Let me just use consumerism as an example. You guys know what consumerism is? Consumerism is the idea uh, that, that uh, we are um, it, it, essentially a worldview of organizing our lives around that, what, that which we can buy. So as Americans, we tend to worship whatever it is that we can buy, all right? So we can buy a car, buy a house, maybe even pay the bills, buy some good food. Like whatever we can buy, we, 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 we tend to lift those things up as pristine. I mean, you just look at TV, music videos, movies, and you can see consumerism all through it. This idea that we are, that we are at our core a consumer buying some good. Are you tracking? Now what happens is, and Alec Motier in his commentary on Jeremiah points this out, what happens as consumers is that we become nothing more than a cheap commodity. Like humans become goods. This is why we have what we call the sex industry, right? Where, where we just take the, 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 the human form and it becomes a cheap commodity, something to consume. Or I even think of uh, the 343 murders in Baltimore City last year in 2017. Well, what does that mean? It's because we just simply see each other as cheap commodities. And if you're in my way, I can just remove you. And you say, well, I've never murdered. Maybe not physically, but in your heart. How we just disdain people. How we just simply use people. This is an example, I think, of what he's getting at. He's saying you've turned to worthlessness and you became worthless yourself. He's not saying that you don't have the image of God. He's not saying you're actually worthless, but you're acting as if you're worthless. Does that make sense? You've become like that you worship. And you're nothing more. We also forget God's gifts. Look at verse 7. God gives them land. He gives them fruits. He gives them good things, but they've cheapened his good gifts. He gives you wine and we cheapen it and use it just to get a, a cheap buzz. He gives us food and we use it just to, just to get some instant gratification. He gives us friends and we just use them for our purposes. I mean, everything that you have is a gift from God. Yet we forget that, don't we? We're prone to forget that. We're prone to value all of what we have as a gift from Him. Your spouse is a good gift from God. Believe that. I remember uh, some years ago, my wife and I, as many of you know, gotten, had some real marriage challenges. And I think leading up to that was the mentality that I had that uh, my marriage was indestructible. And as a result, I ran over it uh, like a tank 
um, as opposed to treating it as a delicate flower, as a gift. We've got to be reminded. Your kids are a gift. It's so easy to forget that, isn't it? It's so easy to uh, uh, allow our kids to just simply become a nuisance in the way of what we want to do. I want to watch this movie, and you're talking right now. <laughs> I want to go out, but you're here. <laughs> and then what happens is we drift into this same place where they're at. We turn our, what a gift a child is. I was gone for this last week, and God uses that to remind me of, a gift, of the gift that my children are when I can't see them for a week. And I remember back to taking them to uh, Port Discovery downtown when my girls were little. And I'm thinking, man, it's just so many days where when they were like five, six, seven years old, and I'd be down at Port Discovery and just be looking at my watch or reading, feeling like I'm wasting my time. And man, if I could go back to those days. Do you know what I'm saying? But, but we, we turn all the gifts that God has given us into just cheap commodities. Your job is a gift. I know it's a grind. I know you've got challenges. But what if you lost it? It's a gift. It's a gift. Your church family is a gift. I know sometimes it doesn't feel that. It's, we're humans. We're broken. We get annoyed with each other, right? I get it. But if we could start seeing each other as a gift, like you are in my life for a reason, how would that change, fundamentally change, the way that we respond toward each other? They also forget God's word. They forget his worth. They forget his gifts. I want to give you a third one. They forget his word. Now, this has to do with the leadership. Look at verse 8. Let me just read this to you. It says, the priests. So, let me back up. What he's saying is, is when all of this stuff was going on, and you guys are forgetting my gifts, and you're, you're, you're turning to worthless God, he says this, the priests did not say, meaning during that time, the priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds, meaning the pastors, transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not prophet, meaning the leadership of Israel forgot God. Those who were entrusted to handle the word of God forgot to handle the word of God, which is why Jeremiah has come along. Listen, I don't want Jeremiah to come along in this church. Well, he's not going to Old Covenant Nuke. I get that. But my point is this. If I ever stop preaching the word of God, grab a constitution it is outlined in our church constitution how to fire me. All right, it takes two-thirds of vote. I'll tell you right now. Two-thirds of the membership, call a members meeting. Uh, you have to give everybody a week heads up. You can call a membership meeting. You can hold a membership meeting. I don't even have to be present, and somebody can motion to remove me. Give them a good reason. And if you get over two-thirds of a vote, you remove me as, the, uh, as an elder. You need to know that. Because the word has to be handled, and that's my job. You see what I'm saying? Remove me as the main teaching guy and let Montrell up here. and he, he, Maybe he'll do a better job. But remove him if he stops preaching the word of God. You see what I'm saying? 
This is why we've got checks and balances in place to avoid what happened in Israel as they forgot the word of God. Now, as a result of all of this, there's a strange turn that happens in Israel. In verse 11, it shows our, the strangeness of it. It says, even the pagan nations don't change their gods. He's essentially saying, has, has a nation ever changed its gods? Meaning, look across the board, and you can see all the different pagan nations. They don't change their gods. They tend to cling to their gods. These are our gods. Who changes their gods? Israel. The one nation who has the true God is the nation who has decided to exchange their God for another. In verse 12, he says, this is shocking. He says, be appalled. And then his verse 13, he gives us this analogy of the farmer. You're like, a, you're like a farmer. You're like a farmer who, who has built cisterns, cracked cisterns. And he's turning to the Nile in verses 14 through 19. He, we see all the di different waters that they're drinking from. They're drinking from the waters of the Nile while the people of Egypt have shaved their heads and they're being led away. They have forgotten God's worth. They have forgotten God's gifts. So the human heart is forgetful. Secondly, let me give you another one here that I see in the text. Secondly, the human heart is evil. The human heart is wicked. I saw a movie on Netflix last week. It takes me like four or five days to get through a movie, and I got through this one. It was called, um, I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore. Has anybody seen it? Okay, you have? Okay, maybe one person. Is that an old movie? It is a long title. Yeah, I tend to watch movies with long titles. The, in, the, in the movie, it's about this uh, very passive, quiet girl whose house gets broken into, and uh, then she basically just on her own becomes a vigilante and goes after the people that broke into her house. It's pretty entertaining. I don't know if I can recommend it. I'm just telling you I watched it. Um, I don't recall anything like super sinful in it. Um, <laughs> watch it. Let me know what you think. Um, and uh, so she, all this to say, she, she finds uh, the, the, the father of the guy who broke into her house, and he's like, what is your goal? What is your end goal? What are you trying to do? And he says, are you just going to, like, find him? And, or do you want money? She's like, no, I don't want to pay off. What do you want? He said, are you just going to like say, hey, you shouldn't do that, wah, wah. And she was like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. She's like, people are, she uses a word that I won't use. I'm going to, people are jerks. People are jerks. I don't want people to be jerks anymore. That's my goal. That's my, and the whole movie really is about this young lady who's been taken advantage of and all this kind of stuff, and she's just tired of people being jerks. And the reason people make these movies and the reason we watch them is because we all know people really are jerks. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, you just look around. Montreux is talking about gossiping at work. Montreux, or uh, you, you can walk up and down the street and just see how people just, you know, take advantage of each other and abuse 
the environment and whatever it is. Like, people are jerks. We could talk all day about the essential goodness of human beings when we all know down deep that humans are essentially wicked. The human heart is evil. There are eight images that Jeremiah gives in, in this message which show the wickedness of Israel. Let me just go through these images with you really quickly here. In verse 20, we see this image of the whore. He talks about high hills and prostitution. It was on the high hills that they would set up their fertility cults, and that this is where you would have prostitution. And he's bringing this image to mind for Israel to know that you are like an unfaithful prostitute. In verse 21, he talks about the wild vine. I, I planted you as a choice vine. You are to be pure, but you've gone wild. You've got weeds all over the place. In verse 22, he talks about this stain that they have. And you can take soap, but, uh, and you can try to wash away the evidence of your, uh, uh, your unfaithfulness, but no matter how much soap you use, you can't get the guilt off of you. In verse 24, he talks about this wild donkey or a young camel. A wild donkey, a donkey in heat is what, it, is, is what he's saying, a camel in heat. Unrestrained lust. Going after whatever you can go after. Now I think here we could sort of summarize those images and say that they are pursuing pleasure. It might have been, I think, sexual pleasure would have been part of that. I think there would have been like a literal uh, uh, nature to some of this stuff, to where they are literally delighting in as much uh, sexual pleasure, as much physical pleasure as they possibly can. And I think beyond that, that's symbolic of the deeper stuff of their heart that they're just simply going after whatever God can promise the most pleasure to them. The gods of instant gratification, you name them, they're out there. We're tempted by them, whether you realize it or not. Let me give you a fifth image in verse 26. He talks about a thief. He says you're like a thief, but not just any thief. You're like a thief who doesn't even care, doesn't even have any shame that you were caught. Even a thief has some shame when they are caught. There is a natural shame. I'm not talking about godly repentance. There is a natural shame that comes along with being found out. Isn't there? You could still want to do it all over again, but you're just ashamed that your parents know or that your brother knows or that your friends know. And what he's saying is like, you guys don't even have that. Even a thief has shame when he's caught. You know that you're caught. You know that your guilt is ever before you. And your, your, your conscience is seared, is what he's saying. This pursuit of pleasure, you have a seared conscience. Another one he gives, a sixth one, is uh, that of a, a, a lion or a ravening lion in verse 30. Let me read verse 30 to you. He says, In vain I have struck your children. They took no correction. Your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. Meaning, I sent people to you. I've been sending prophets. Hosea has come. Isaiah has come. There's been others who have come, but you've rejected them. You've killed the prophets. You've put them off. 
This is a rejection of the Word of God. This is a distancing of yourself from those who speak the truth. We don't want to hear the truth. We don't want to hear the Word of God. And I know if I speak to this person or go to that place that I'll hear the Word of God, and so I distance myself from this prophet. A seventh image is a wilderness of darkness, which is in verse 31. It's a rhetorical question that God has, is asking them. Have I been a wilderness of darkness to you? Meaning, have, have I been bad to you? Is what he's saying? Have I been unhelpful? Have I been like a dark desert? Finally, in verse 34, we see this image of blood. Verse 34 says, Also on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. You did not find them breaking in, yet in spite of all these things, you say, I'm innocent. Meaning somebody's dead who didn't do anything wrong. You didn't find them breaking into your house. They weren't trying to harm you, but you shot them. They're dead. What was their crime? Their crime was that they were poor, is what he's saying. This is straight up injustice. Alec Motier, he says, he says that coveting leads to idolatry, which leads to greed, which leads to marginalizing the poor, which leads to broken societies. Meaning you can't separate good religion from justice. You can't separate a right understanding of the gospel and who Christ is and what he's doing in our lives as he's recreating the image of God. You can't, you can't separate that from social justice. We can't just talk about morals as a church and doing right and not sinning without talking about the marginalization of the poor, which is one of his issues that he's having here with his people. The blood of the innocents is all over here. In what way are we marginalizing the poor? I mean, how does this frame the way that we think of the immigrant? How does this frame the way that we think of those who are quote-unquote, and I really put this in quotes, less fortunate? I hate that term, less fortunate. They might be more fortunate than you'll ever be. Or some might say, well, I'm marginalized. I'm, I, I grew up poor. I grew up... Is it possible for someone who's marginalized and poor to marginalize, and, uh, marginalize others? You know, I've been in a lot of communities with high densities of poverty my whole life. And there are people among the marginalized who marginalize others. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, this is something that speaks to every single one of us. How do we look at those who we don't like, who we think are lesser than us, for whatever reason? And are we people of justice?
we can see the wickedness of Israel here. We can see ourselves in this, can't we? One person once said that if you look inside yourself and you truly examine yourself, you see two things. On one hand, you see nobility and glory. Think about this. As you examine yourself, you see that there is a sense of real value inside myself. Maybe that others have never, never noticed. You can see that in yourself, can't you? There's, there's nobility there. There's some glory there. But then the same person goes on to say that on the other hand, there is a definite wretchedness that we also see in ourselves. A wretchedness that we can't describe. A wretchedness that nobody else really sees. Well, this is the human condition, created in the image of God, thus having intrinsic value, yet fallen, depraved, prone toward wickedness, prone toward sin, prone toward evil. The human heart is forgetful, and the human heart is evil. Thirdly, the human heart is delusional. We get delusional. I love those, those YouTube videos of people who are on uh, uh, post-surgery medication, and they're delusional. You know what I'm talking about? You've seen those? I love watching those. I've got some wisdom teeth that need to come out, and I don't want to get my wisdom teeth taken out because I don't want to end up being on one of those videos. Because my wife will do that. One of my favorites is this guy who's he's, he's, uh, just came out of surgery. He's literally in the hospital bed. His eyes are closed and his wife is there. And he's angry with his wife. Which that's my fear. I'm afraid I'm going to be like a jerk. <laughs> he's angry with his wife. And he says, uh, we, he's, he says um, why didn't you help me change the tire? She's like, what are you talking about? He's like, we were changing the tire, and that's why I'm so cold right now, because it was raining, and you didn't get out of the car. And, and she was like, what are you talking, I didn't, you think we changed the tire? Yes, we changed the tire. What do you, think I forgot? She was like, how did you go from the hospital to changing, I don't know how I did it, but I'm telling you we did it, and I was in the cold, and it was raining, and you didn't help me, and that's why I'm freezing right now. And then he pulls his sheet down. He's like, and that's why my bandages are coming off. <laughs> Delusional. Now, that's kind of funny, and we laugh at that. However, I will say this. When it comes to our relationship with God, delusional isn't funny. It's not cute. And it's not something that we can just innocently sort of come out of. But we are truly delusional. Let me just quickly do this for you. Let me show you a couple quotes that Jeremiah gives us that Israel has said themselves, which shows that they are delusional. In verse 20, they say, I will not serve God. Meaning, after God has broken our chains, after he's taken us out of bondage, their response is, I don't want to serve you. In verse 23, they say, I'm not unclean. And now this is after their, their guilt has been 
put right before them, meaning they can't deny the guilt. The, the stain of blood is on their clothing. They can't wash away the evidence, but their response is, is I'm not guilty. And the point is this, wayward people rare, rarely realize that they are wayward. You guys tracking with me? Like when you're in sin and you're rebelling against God, you don't realize that you're in sin and rebelling against God. Why? It's because you're delusional. They're delusional. It's right in front of your face and you can't see it and you claim, I'm not unclean. Or verse 25. They say, it is hopeless for I have loved foreigners and after them I will go. It's hopeless. It's hopeless. We've loved foreigners, and so we're just going to go after them. It's hopeless. This is sort of like, I've stolen a dollar, now I need to steal a thousand dollars. Or, I kissed her, and so now I might as well go the rest of the way. I've done this little bit, might as well do the rest. It's hopeless. You see the delusion there. But we think like this. We get all delusional. And because we've committed this sin, we might as well do it all. It's essential. And, And nothing I can do about it. Verse 27, say to a tree, they say to a tree, you're my father, and to a stone you gave me birth. Meaning we just came from nothing. Came from that tree, I came from that stone. Now I think we can apply this to an atheistic understanding of how the world came into an existence. Just from absolutely nothing. Nature just gave birth to nature. Or we can look at it a little more literally in the way that they were looking at it, which is they're probably literally looking at trees and stones, gods made out of wood, saying we came from them. Oh, I get my life from this. I get my life from that. I get my happiness from that. No. You think things lesser than you have brought you into existence? This is an outright denial of the existence of God. Verse 27, they say, arise and save us. Oh, now you do. So after all of this, when you hit rock bottom, and Assyria's coming, and Egypt's coming, and Babylon's coming, now you say, oh, I need your help. You guys ever find yourself in that place? A rejection of God, doing your own thing, feeling like you can work your job without him, feeling like you can go along without him, and then all of a sudden you lose your ability, or all of a sudden you lose your job, or you lose your opportunity, or whatever it is, and now you cry out to God. But this is coupled with, look at verse 31, this is coupled with, we are free, we will come to you no more. Meaning, okay, we're good, never mind, we will no longer come to you. And by the way, they say we are free, which there's this, there's this myth that circles through culture, uh, which, which, which essentially goes like this. If you can rid yourself of Christianity, you find true freedom. You ever heard people talk about it, just got away from the chains of religion, and I'm free now. This is a myth that is not new. This has been going on for millennia. That if I can rid myself of God, I can finally be free. Wow, how delusional. There is freedom only in God. 
What you think is freedom is bondage. Sexual liberation is bondage. It's not liberation. Only God provides freedom. We want God, and as soon as we get Him, we don't want Him anymore. Finally, verse 35. They say, but I'm innocent. Surely His anger has turned from me. Again, just this delusional back and forth. He's not angry with us. The chapter ends with God essentially saying, your testimony will not stand in court. Let me just read these last couple verses to you. Verse 35. You say I'm innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying I have not sinned. How much you go about changing your way. You shall be put to shame by Egypt. You were put to shame by Assyria. For it too will come away. Sorry, you will come away with your hands on your head. For the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust and you will not prosper by them. Our mind is messed up. Romans 1 says that God gave us over to the depravity of our mind. We have, as human beings, intrinsically a delusional mind. I don't mean that the human mind can't do, accomplish great things as it comes to the physical world around us. I think we can but as it comes to the most important world, and that is the spiritual world, we're delusional. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, within the covenant community, God says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our minds are delusional. God, help me think right. A ministry that doesn't touch the mind doesn't touch the heart. And as a result, we will just continue in our delusional hearts. This argument will not stand in court. They are guilty before God, and their judgment is coming against them. They're hoping in the various gods of the world, politicians, false teachers, social media personalities, celebrities, ideas, authors, books, rappers, singers, songs, you name it hoping in the messages of the world, yet these things stand contrary to the message of God. We're hoping then in en enemies of God, he is saying. Listen, you can bet against God if you want to. You can bet on the world. Think about this with me, all right? How many of you enjoy gambling? And no hands go up. Good. Excellent. <laughs> Is he serious? <laughs> Putting the scratch off away. <laughs> um, you could bet on the world. It uh, has a very little cost, maybe no cost. I think there's some cost, probably. The reward is uh, possibly pretty significant. Living a life without having to think of your conscience, living a life without God, just kind of doing whatever your body feels like doing. There, there's likely some, there is some temporal payoff. I don't know how, that's, how you're going to fare long term in this world. But there is some temporal payoff to this. Meaning there is like a finite reward that is attached if you go with the world. 
Or you can bet on God, which is extremely costly. Meaning you deny the world. Meaning we deny just our inclinations. We deny just what our body tells us we want to do. We, we submit ourselves to a being that we can't even see. We live not by sight, but we live by faith. I mean, friends, this is extremely costly. And it always has been. And it's costly today. But the reward is infinite. Do you know how long eter eternity is? How many years is eternity, Tony? We can't even fathom it. I mean, it's beyond our comprehension. But those with Christ, in Christ, with God, receive eternal rewards. How can that measure to what the world can give you today? How can the gods of the world give you anything that would compare to what God has in store for His children forever and forever and forever in Christ Jesus? What is ho the hope that we have for the lost soul? What is the hope for those of us who have betrayed against God? Betrayed God's love. Well, let me remind you of a story. There was one husband who took for himself a wife who was unfaithful. They had a couple children together, but then the third child came along and that child was not his. Things sort of got worse and she ended up going to her lover's house on a regular basis. She would sleep at her lover's house. She would stay at her lover's house. Her lover was broke. He couldn't give her anything. But her, her husband would come along and he would leave warm clothes and he would leave food and he would put, even put some makeup out behind the door there. And then her lover would find that stuff and give it to her and she would say, Oh, my lover has given me such good gifts. My lover supplies me with all the things that I need, but little did she know that it was her husband all along providing for her, even in her rebellion. Things got really bad. She finds herself on the auction block. She's probably being sold now as a sex slave. Used goods. Throw her to the wolves to whoever can bid the most. But above the voices of all of those bidding, she hears the voice, a familiar voice, the voice of her husband, a voice that rises above all of the other voices, and he throws down more money than anybody else is willing to pay for this slave. He buys her with a great price. He brings her home. And she's not going to be his slave. He says, you're going to live with me. You're going to be faithful to me. You're not going to go after any other man. And you will be mine. But then he says this, and I will be yours. Don't you realize that this is your story? 
Don't you realize that Jesus Christ is the groom who has come to renew the covenant with God's bride? Don't you know that as we read this, that this, this leaves us in need of a Savior? And Jesus Christ came and he lived the life that the bride ought to have lived. He even died on the cross and paid a price more than anybody could ever pay. He bought us with a great price, the purchase of his own blood. As his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins, as he took the judgment for our sin on his own body on the tree. But it doesn't end on Friday with a crucifixion. Three days later, Jesus rises from the dead. The stone rolls away and he stands victorious. He's a victorious groom who accomplished something for his bride. And he looks at us and he says, all who turn from your sin and trust in me, I forgive you of your sins and I will raise, give you hope of the resurrection of the dead one day. I will recreate you. You will be my people forever and ever. I guarantee that. He promises that. Are you in Christ, friends? Has there ever been a time where you've run to him, clinging to him and to him alone, trusting in his blood? Do it now. Trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Those of you who have been walking with Christ for years, be reminded of his love. Be renewed in his love. Be restored in his love. God, let us not forget you. Don't let us forget you. Don't let us run from you. Don't let us forget your word. Change us. Cleanse our wicked, evil, sinful hearts. Renew our minds. Don't let us be delusional. God, I pray, Lord, that you would help us as your church, as your sons and daughters who have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, I pray that you would help us to cling to you and to you alone. That we would not go back to the idols of this world. I pray that we would not run to the things that just give us instant gratification. I pray that we would not give into this delusional mind that we so often have and believing that something else can offer something better than what you give us. God, I pray that we would not take advantage of your grace and adopt this heresy that the early church had that we might just go on sinning so that grace may abound. I pray that we will live lives that make sense. That make sense of your grace that makes sense of the Holy Spirit working in us, changing us, that we might walk according to the life that you've called us to, the deeds which you have set before us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen.